Before we get started today, we need to celebrate something. Um, it was Julia White's birthday last week, but I won't embarrass her. Uh, we need to celebrate Operation Christmas Child. Um, look at all the boxes that we as a community have, have made. We don't exactly know where they're going to go. Last year, they all went to Mexico. Maybe this year, usually they stay somewhere south of the border. Um, but I just want to take an opportunity and thank God for you guys for allowing us to be able to celebrate this. I mean, this is quite a feat. I mean, there's probably close to 100, 150 boxes, and we'll pack them up today, take them down to Denver tomorrow, and then they're going to be off to wherever they're going to go to bless someone in the name of Jesus. Lord, thank you so much for allowing us as a, as a church to celebrate you through the, the benefits and the blessings you've given us to go and bless other people, Lord. I thank you for the opportunity of Operation Christmas Child. And as we send these boxes off to go and bless someone else, may they give someone the hope of Christ. May they recognize that it's not just stuff in a box, but this is us showing them that we care about them because, God, you care about us. Lord, I pray that they would be a blessing and they'd provide something for those kids. Hope and joy in a place where they may not have much. Thank you. In your name, amen. You can go ahead and open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. I have the distinct privilege or liability sometimes of finishing up the book of Philippians today. Jim's in sunny San Diego. I know, I'm jealous. There's a picture Nancy posted of her feet up next to the pool the other day, and I'm like, really? And we have more snow. Awesome. It's great for the resorts, right? That's what I keep telling myself. Um, but they're off. He's at a conference he goes to every year. It's called ETS, Evangelical Theological Society. That's where people like him with PhDs and talk about the Bible for a week and a half and go things and say big fancy words that I don't even understand. So it's great. He loves it. Um, but he'll be back next week. And so this week we're going to finish up Philippians. Um, next week is the start of Advent. So be ready for the Christmas season. Imagine that. Thanksgiving's Thursday. Whew. Man, can't believe it. So, Philippians chapter 4. We're going to start here. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Okay, so already Paul is starting to wrap up Philippians. He's starting to say a last couple of comments to the people and as he does in many of his letters, he starts out by just saying, you know, guys, keep the faith. Just stand firm. And we're actually going to be able to look at what this looks like in their scenario. As we start, start here, number two, verse two, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Sintik to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, loyal yoke fellow or helpers, Help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my follow, fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. There's some sort of conflict going on here, and he's encouraging them to be united. He's encouraging them to stand firm in their faith. And as we're about to see, one of the things that we know about conflict is conflict breeds anxiety. Right? How many of you guys have experienced conflict in your life, right? Yeah, pretty much all of us. And we all know that conflict doesn't make us excited unless you're 
one of those people who love conflict and run into it and go, I want to cause some problems. Right? Conflict breeds anxiety in our life, whether it's a conflict with a boss, whether it's conflict with your spouse, whether it's conflict with your kids, a friend, a coworker, something. Conflict isn't something that just makes us go to sleep at night. It keeps us up at night. And as we see, there's something going on here, and Paul's going to step into it and begin to navigate this whole process with the church of Philippi. Just because these two people who are serving together are disagreeing about something. And so here we go in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. So first of all, he begins to paint a picture that we shouldn't be just caught up in what's going on. Find the center point. That center point is Jesus. He takes it immediately not to, okay, solve the problem. He says, focus your eyes on Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord always. No matter what's going on, no matter what your anxiety is, rejoice. Whatever that conflict they are dealing with, rejoice in God. Focus on God. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Okay, so there's two things going on here. First of all, it's a, it's a command for us to do something, for us to take off our eyes and attention off the problem and focus on to Jesus. But it's also recognizing that when we do that, our gentleness, our peace, our patience becomes evident to everyone. It affects the people around us. People should be able to see that. When you're in conflict with your boss, if you're focusing on Jesus, your gentleness will become evident to everyone in the situation. And people will go, wait a second, you're not getting frustrated and angry even though you're experiencing conflict. You're focusing on God. You're focusing on something other than yourself in this conflict. It allows you to be a witness. Just in a subtle way, by changing the lifestyle you have. And here you go, again, it says, do not be anxious about anything. There's nothing under the sun that God's not in control of. That's why Paul starts going, start with Jesus. Work from Jesus. He's your center point. Rejoice in the Lord always. Now don't be anxious. Just like what Jesus says in Matthew, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough worries of its own. And get, instead, focus on heaven. Don't store up your treasures on earth. Store them up in heaven. Every time we see this language used in the New Testament, the immediate answer of anxiousness is focus on heaven. This is how we begin to defend our territory as Christians. How we begin to defend our faith more than any other way, not verbally, but as a lifestyle. When, when we get frustrated, when we experience anxiety, we turn to Jesus. We don't turn to our checkbook. We don't get frustrated. We go, God, you are the one who owns the checkbook. Last time I checked, he created the world. All the world has the gold. And so he made the gold. He owns the gold, right? He says, don't worry about that. Focus on me. You know, the best managers in the world free up their employees by taking care of the big problems so the employees can be productive in their own right, whatever that task is. 
God is the best manager because he said, I'm going to take care of your budget. I'm going to take care of your finances. I'm going to take care of your family. I'm going to take care of your food. Now just focus on loving people. Just focus on me and focus on loving people. Everything else is taken care of for you. Your jobs are taken care of. So do not be anxious. But in everything, present your requests to God. God wants to know what troubles you. He wants to hear that. He wants to be in on the conversation because he wants to give you something in return. In the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So the trade-off here is we're giving God our anxiousness. We're focusing in on Christ. We're letting people see this as we're going through this process. We're letting our gentleness, our patience, our peace be evident to everyone. And now God says, you know what? I'm going to give you peace. The peace because you're focused in on me. You're no longer worried about the money problem because you're not focused on the money problem. You're focused on me. You know, the joke is, you know, as you guys know, somebody hurts their finger. Well, I'll hit you in the head with a hammer. Your finger won't hurt as bad anymore, right? You know, as soon as we begin to focus on something else, everything else becomes, to, becomes less of a priority. You know, if your house is leaking in one spot and the faucet's leaking in the bathroom, the faucet in the bathroom is no longer a priority because you need to get the bucket underneath the leak, right? It's the same thing in our walk with Christ. As we move closer and closer to him, everything else in this world that really doesn't matter becomes a less of a priority. And people will see that. When you choose to be less anxious about things because you know God's going to take care of it, people see that. People experience that because, you know, Think about you're watching a football game when you treat it as a football game and it's a game and at the end of the day it doesn't matter what the scoreboard is and you're just like, wow, that was just really fun to watch and you're not mad about it. All of a sudden, you could be the best football player in the world. You could be Peyton Manning and just go, yeah, it was fun. I'm not worried about how we did because I focus on something greater. People see that and they go, wait a second, there's more to life than just money. There's more to life than just worrying about our problems. Because we'll always have those, right? I'm 30. I already know that we have our ship. Okay, I turned 30 in two weeks. I already know we have our fair share of problems. But I also know that when you're 95, you still have problems. You still have to worry about things. Focus on God. He's unchanging. And that's what Paul begins to exhort in us. And then he, he starts to finish this up. Finally, brothers... Whatever is true. Well, true is a great statement in the 21st century, right? We live in a world where true is becoming more and more relative. Everywhere you look, right? That's what definition of a postmodern society is, is that all things become relative. And you're now starting to see it in the way that we have politics, the way that we have government, the way we treat people, the way that we respond to people. True has become relative in a lot of our minds. You know, in the book that Jim's been talking about, The Radical Disciple, John Stott says in there, he quotes Jerome, one of the early church fathers, he said, ignorance in scripture is ignorance of our Christ. So in the matter of truth, we do have something that's going to point us in a really good direction in the Bible. 
And not only so, it points us to Christ, again, focusing on him. All of a sudden, a lot of those things that became relative in our life either became a little bit more clear on what we should do, or they became less of a priority. Because again, the priority is Christ. Whatever is true. And you guys see it all the time when you start seeing and experiencing relationships with your neighbors and your friends, that they're looking in the world where they want truth. They want to know what to do. They may not like what we say. But that truth points them to Jesus. So are you thinking about whatever is true? And then the next one is, Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is worthy of respect. Think about your life. Are you the person that you want to follow? I mean, we don't like politicians generally because they're not people that we want to follow. They're flip-floppers. Or they'll say anything to get someone's vote. Or they'll do anything to get someone's vote. Or think about some of the other people who you don't have respect for. Well, because they only celebrate themselves. They don't celebrate anything else. Or all they want to do is just make more money at any cost, whether they step on people or crush people, or they hurt your feelings in the process. Are you someone who's chasing respect? Because, again, this is setting your life apart from everyone else in this world. We're in a world that's becoming more and more amoralistic. Our morals as a world are starting to disappear. That means people that are worthy of respect are going to start showing up more and more because their lifestyles are going to look more and more different. If you go to places like France and Europe, it's no longer a good, person, good thing to be a person with money because it's frowned upon. Some of the lifestyle choices that Christians make in France and places in Europe make their lives look so abnormal that it's frowned upon. What, if that, what does that look like in America? We're heading in that direction. In a world that, that respect is even become, becoming an issue. I mean, students all the time, we start to talk about who do they look up to for respect? Who do they respect? Some of them don't even respect their teachers anymore in the ways that we were brought up to respect them. You have to be a person of noble character. Your life has to look different than everyone else's. It has to. And then we keep moving on, and here's another piece. Whatever is pure. Just think about that for a moment. What in your life are you trying to achieve that's pure, that's untainted, that's solely wrapped around God? In your business practices, are you willing to cut corners? Or are you going to make sure that every aspect of it is pure and holy? In your relationships with your spouses and your families, are you willing to cut corners for the cause of getting a win somewhere else down the line? Or are you focusing on making it as pure as you possibly can? What about relationships with coworkers, friends, families? Again, this list that Paul gives us, it's not even a full list, begins to, to make us look different all around us. 
We begin to live a life that's set apart. And we should, because again, the whole series of Philippians is talking about our citizenship is not of here, not of America, not of this world, but in heaven. When we begin to focus on heaven, we begin to look different. And that's a good thing. It's a great thing. Because then people see us, not for who we are, but for who he is. And we'll keep going down. Whatever is lovely. Are you focusing on loving people? Does your life revolve on loving God and loving others? Doing whatever you can to make sure that that's a priority in your life. Doing whatever you can to make sure that you don't miss an opportunity to love someone. That's tough. This is the bar that Paul is starting to set for us. Not because it's attainable by any means, but because that's the journey we're on. That's the trajectory of heaven. To constantly doing more and more and more to set us apart from the world. Whatever is admirable. Do people want to be like you? Parents, do your kids want to be like you? Does your theology reflect your lifestyle? Do people look at you and go, man, that's a, that's a person I want to be. I look up to that person or I trust that person. If not, what's in the way of that? Jim was last week just talking about burning the ships of our life that sometimes get in the way of us and Jesus. What does that look like? What are some of the things that hold us back from being a person like that? If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So all of verse 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. When we start to focus on all of these pieces, not just one piece, but all of these, again, our life starts to look different. You know, to speak in sports or war terms, the best defense is a good offense. When our life looks different, we don't have to worry about defending our faith. We don't have to worry about knowing all the answers because they look at us and go, you already live different than everyone else. What's that about? Why do you care about being a person of respect? Why do you care about being looked up to? Why do you care about loving other people? That's way better than answering the question of well, why doesn't evolution work or or why do I know the Bible is true? That's way better. I'd much rather deal with the question of why do I love someone than why do I know the Bible is true? That's a great question. It's a great question for people to walk up and ask us. And that's the road that Paul is putting us down and showing us and, and exhorting us to live to. It says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, Put into practice, and the peace of God will be with you. Again, Paul says, look at me as your first example. Look at me at how I do this. I mean, Paul's writing this letter from prison. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. When you start to focus on God, imagine that he'll be with you wherever you go. 
Paul begins this next list, this next section of Scripture, where he simply does, he, he puts some of this into practice. He says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me, and indeed you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know whatever it is to, I knew what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Paul recognizes that it's not about him. It's not about his temporal surroundings. It's not about a momentary pain. It's not about a momentary suffering. It's about looking to heaven. It's about looking for Christ to give us strength because focusing on him allows us to not worry about everything else. The true manager of our life. He's got it all taken care of. And that's what Paul points out. He goes on to thank the people of Philippi for the gifts that he's given them. That's one way this week we can celebrate what God has done in our lives, to be that witness, to be a life that's centered around the gospel, to be a life that's focused on Jesus, is to tell people what we're thankful about this week. It's Thanksgiving. We set aside a day as a country to be thankful. I know this year, more than anything, I'm just thankful for Jesus because the more I study Scripture and the more I look at the world, I go, man, I'm so glad he's on my side because I don't want to be against him. Because that breeds hardship. Not because we don't experience anything different than a non-Christian, but because we have hope. Because when you focus on Jesus, you receive his peace. When you focus on Jesus, you receive everything about him. That's what I'm thankful for more than anything else. I'm thankful for my family. I'm thankful for my friends. I'm thankful, thankful for this church. I mean, Paul is recognizing the church of Philippi for the gifts that they've given. Mark, Jim, I, Annika, Jude, Mike, and Jerry Shukart, Julie Glasgow, the staff, Cindy. We'd all say thank you to you because you guys are the ones that allow us to do ministry. We'd echo these same thanks to you because you guys choose to focus on Jesus. And in doing so, that allows you to experience the freedom in life more than anything else. And that's what Paul talks about in this last section. Because he seeks contentment in Christ, he experiences the freedom of life. Think about that this week. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll have the ushers come forward for the offering. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the snow. Thank you for Thanksgiving. Thank you for giving us your word. Lord, help us see the areas of our life where we can cling to being more pure, or we can cling and do more things that are loving, or we, our life can look more uh, worthy of respect. Help us recognize those moments. And Lord, as we are about to partake in our offering, Lord, I pray that, you, that we'd be thankful of that. 
and we'd see that as a blessing from you so that we can go out and love people. That we don't get anxious about the money. We don't get anxious about, well, what if this doesn't happen or what if this doesn't happen? That we just focus on you and let you do what you do, which is provide. Thank you for that in your name. Amen. Ushers, please come forward. As we begin to enter into a time of communion, a time of celebration, I ask that the servers come up. And this is the greatest way that I believe that God has enabled us to do the greatest love in the world. Is the ultimate thing that is in between, in the way between us and Him, is the fact that we have sinned. On the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it, he said, this is my body broken for you, as a symbol of what he was going to do as the greatest manager in the world to take care of our greatest problem, to reconcile him to us us to him. And then he took some wine and he said, this is my blood shed for you because Christ died on the cross to pay for the ultimate sacrifice and our ultimate problem, sin again. We partake in this to recognize exactly that. That Christ died was buried and rose again in hopes of us being able to go out and love people, that we'd be reconciled to him so we could go out and love. I encourage you to come forward. If you'd like prayer, there will be some people standing on the sides. I'm up here in the front. Otherwise, please come forward.
Take me.